On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Jean Kwok is the award-winning New York Times and international best-selling author of three novels, Girl in Translation, Mambo in Chinatown, and her most recent, Searching for Sylvie Lee, which was an instant New York Times bestseller and selected for the Today Show book club, Read with Jenna, Bellatrist, and so much more. Jean immigrated from Hong Kong to Brooklyn when she was five years old, later attended Harvard undergrad and Columbia, where she received her MFA in fiction. So welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Jean. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be joining you today. So there's a lot to unpack in your bio. But before we do that, tell us a little about Searching for Sylvie Lee. Well, Searching for Sylvie Lee is the story of two sisters. It's basically about what happens when the dazzling, beautiful, talented older sister Sylvie goes to the Netherlands to say goodbye to her dying grandmother and disappears. And then her younger sister, Amy, who stutters and has always been in Sylvie's shadow, has to pull herself together to try to figure out what happened to her. And it's about how Amy's search for Sylvie leads to the unraveling of these secrets that tie together these three women in an immigrant Chinese family, Sylvie, Amy, and Ma. You have so many elements of my favorite books, the thriller aspect of it, the search for it, but also really deep, interesting character work. I mean, it's the stuff that this podcast is made for. And we are going to dive into that for sure. But first, I do want to talk about your bio. So it is obviously a very impressive professional bio, but also a fascinating personal one with so many threads that we could pull. But we want to talk about your journey to becoming a writer. You immigrated to this country as a child without speaking the language, initially studying science at Harvard, then discovering your love of writing but not before taking a job as a professional ballroom dancer. We need to hear more about that. Of course, we'd love to know when you then really figured out that you wanted to be a writer and took that seriously. Well, this is why I love you guys and I love your podcast because you just have the most interesting, fascinating questions. So basically, I am a first-generation immigrant and we were incredibly poor when we first came to the U.S. I lived in an apartment that was incredibly run down, so run down that literally the plaster was falling off the walls and off the ceilings. My father made me sleep with my head in a crate sometimes as a child because he was afraid that plaster Mm. from the ceiling would like brain me when I was asleep and unable to duck, you know, fast enough. Mm -hmm. I slept on a mattress on the floor in this vermin infested apartment. And believe me, when an apartment in New York City is overrun with roaches and rats, you do not want to be sleeping on the floor. Like that is the last thing you want to do. I was and still am a person who's terrified of insects. 
So I was just like, oh my God, you know, and I spent my childhood pounding around me to try to keep things away from me. And it was unheated. We didn't have a working central heating system. The windows were covered with ice on the inside, the windows that had glass. I almost feel when I'm telling you this story, like she must be making this up. Like this is something from a Dickens novel. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not, it's not, as you know, my first novel, Girl in Translation, is actually based on my youth. We were really poor. I started working in a factory with my family when I was only five years old. So given that life and given that background, you know, becoming a writer was the last thing that Mm -hmm. I considered. And in fact... Because you want security, right? You want... Exactly. I mean, exactly. And let me tell you about the moment when I first kind of discovered writing, although it didn't occur to me to actually become a writer until many years later. And that was that, you know, I was working in the factory and I was sleeping. And in those days, I would get up in the morning. My father would take me to school. He'd pick me up from school. And then we'd go to the factory and I'd work until like nine or 10 at night, which is late for a five-year-old kid. I actually spent most of my childhood in the factory. All of my homework was done during breaks on the factory or on the subway. But my brothers who are older than I was, especially my brother Quan, would do the same thing. He was in high school at the time, but he would go on to a second job waiting tables at a restaurant in Chinatown until like two or three in the morning. And then he'd come home, sleep a couple of hours and then get up, go to school and do it all again. So it was in that time that one night my brother Quan came home and I was sleeping on my mattress he had a package for me, a present. And that was so incredible because the way we lived in those days, we were paid one penny per piece at the factory. First of all, it's illegal to pay people by the piece, but they did it anyway. But for a tremendous amount of work on one piece of clothing, we were paid one penny per piece. And so there was no money left for gifts or toys or books or anything like that. And so it's very exciting to be given a present. And it amazes me to this day that what he gave me was something that would change my life. It was a blank diary. And he said, whatever you write in this will belong to you. Mm -hmm. And that was just such a powerful idea at that time in my life when I felt so lost and so confused. And my parents had gone from being parents to being people who were even more lost and confused than I was. So that was the moment when I discovered writing. And I loved the library. I loved the librarians. And, you know, that was where I learned to read and loved books. But I mean, my only goal in life was to get out of the factory. Like I was not going to go into an insecure artistic profession. Right. Mm-hmm. It didn't even occur to me. I didn't even like people like me did not become writers. Right. You know, people like me became waitresses or cleaners, you know, mm-hmm. dishwashers. I mean, I was that was not on my multiple choice list to become a writer. <laughs> so I grew up and I was lucky to be good at school after I learned English. And I wound up going to Harvard. And it was really when I was at Harvard that I thought, okay, I maybe can escape that life at the factory. Maybe it's not going to suck me back somehow. And maybe I can try to do what I really love to do. But I can tell you the moment 
I first wrote something, I was a physics major, like you said. Mm-hmm. I had entered, I skipped a year, actually. I was accepted early admission and I was so determined. I knew I was going to be a physicist and I skipped a year. So I entered as a sophomore in physics instead of a junior. I was so gung-ho and like driven <laughs> and ready to go, you know, yeah, totally sure. clueless and young, of course. Yeah. And I was pulling this all-nighter, trying to do a problem set that was really hard. And I remember just sitting there, like trying to figure out this problem. And I was kind of doodling and making notes on a pad beside me while I was trying to do these this physics problem set. And I suddenly wrote a poem. And I was like, oh my God, oh, wow. what is this? You know, it was like I had laid an egg. You know, I was just like, what, what, what did I do? What is this? Really? You know, it came out of me. So oh I was I was just in this state of shock that I had written this poem. But that was kind of a turning point. Sure, that stays mm-hmm. with you. That kind yeah. of, you're like, what? This exactly, what just came exactly. from me, yes. <laughs> and, and then I realized that, of course, you know, all my electives were in English because that was the thing I really loved more than anything else. You know, like you guys, I loved books so much. So from that point on, it kind of became inevitable that I became a writer. And once I knew I wanted to become a writer, that was it. And then I graduated. And like you said, I did work for a few years as a professional ballroom dancer in New York. And that was a day job to support the writing. Uh, Okay. So you started taking it seriously right away. As soon as you knew that it wasn't the only thing you pursued, but it was, it was there, never dropped away. Yeah. Yeah, It was the main thing I was trying to do. It was just trying to support myself while I did it. Right. Right. All of your books, as you've been telling some of these stories, all of your books borrow from your real life experiences, whether that's the ballroom setting of Mambo in Chinatown, the tragic passing of your brother in Searching for Sylvie, or the dualities of a young immigrant in your debut novel, Girl in Translation, as you've already touched on. And that's a story I deeply relate to, just this idea of having a foot in two different worlds. You describe a Aside from the vermin and the insects, you described the keeping the oven door open day and night because you had no heat in your apartment in Brooklyn. Well, my family, we were in Queens and we had heat, but we had no refrigerator. So we used to keep our milk out on the windowsill. And that's one of those stories that I just tell all the time. And that's just part of our family lore that we had to put the milk out there. And you knew when when it was too cold, it'd be icy. And when it was too hot, it would be spoiled. And <laughs> But that was part of our lives. But my question to you is, are you ever surprised by the bits of your life that you provide inspiration for your books or do they feel really obvious to you? Like, I need to include this detail. I think it is kind of like an excavation. You know, you are drawn, you're drawn to certain things that are so powerful that it feels like you can't avoid them. You know, it's like the Chinese idea of fate. You know, the the Chinese think of fate differently. Ming Yun? Ming, is that, is that the word? Yeah, 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 it's something like that. You know, okay. there's, there are a lot of different words okay. for fate in Chinese, but the idea is that it's not that your fate is predetermined like in Western Greek tradition, sure. but it's, we have more the idea that your fate is like a wind. It's a wind that's blowing at you. And so if your will is strong, you can resist the wind and make mm-hmm. your own path. But Sometimes there are moments in a life where the wind is overpowering. 
You know, there's nothing you can do about some types of wind. And no matter what you do, you can be hanging onto the bushes. Yeah. You are huh? going to get blown to where you were meant to be blown. And I think yes. that those items in my life, those issues, I'm really drawn to talk about. And mm. those become clearly the things I want to write about. But on the other hand, in the process of writing about them, there are details that, you know, arise that I hadn't thought about or that I've forgotten. Or sometimes I'll be talking to someone else and a detail from their life sparks something mm. in my own life. You know, and I, I love just hearing about you and your refrigerator. Yeah. That's an example of how books and people can connect. Oh, absolutely. I think when I was growing up, I thought nobody lived right. like everybody had a nice house. Everybody had a really classic suburban life, you know, and Everybody had money. We were the only ones who didn't. That's how it feels. And it's so great to talk to people who say, you know, I had these experiences as well. And then you realize, yeah, we're not so alone as we always thought we were. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I love that description of fate. We're going to return to I that. I know we want to come back to that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a big theme, fate versus free will. And you've just given us a whole new way to look at it. So on Pop Fiction Women, we talk about complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. Our tagline for the show is we're complicated, which means we love to discuss women in fiction that have flaws or imperfections and who don't always make good choices, but who we relate to nonetheless. Searching for Sylvie Lee gives us three complicated and very different women as narrators, all of whom shine a light upon the mystery, as you said, of the disappearance of this golden girl, Sylvie Lee. So we have the dazzling Sylvie, her timid younger sister, Amy, who has to pull herself together and figure out what happened when Sylvie disappears in the Netherlands, and then Ma, the girl's mother. So can you share any challenges you faced in writing these three female main characters? And I'd also love to know which one you relate to the most and why, although I imagine you might have some of each, but we'd love to hear. Well, I have to say that I love the women are complicated theme in your podcast. You know, it's one of the things that drew me to you guys in the first place, because I just love that. I think that's so true. You know, we are, and that's a good thing. And indeed, you know, all three characters are complicated, Sylvie, Amy, and Ma. And I think that one of the hardest things to write and to juggle in creating this book was that, of course, I wanted it to read like a mystery and a thriller. You know, I wanted it to read easily and well and fun so that readers who come just for the story can have a great time, you know, figuring out what happened to Sylvie. But because, like you said, I wanted to also deal with more complicated themes of like immigration and language and culture and how they can complicate our relationships with each other. I have the story told by all three of the women, but they're also each thinking in their own languages. So of course the book is in English, but Sylvie is thinking in Dutch, Ma is thinking in Chinese, and Amy is thinking in English. So as the reader, we become kind of native speakers of each of these languages as we go from chapter to chapter. And one of the reasons I did that was because I wanted us, for example, in Amy's chapter to see Ma. 
And Ma in English is a very simple, loving, but very simple woman. But then when we go into Ma's chapter and where she's thinking in Chinese, we realize that a whole world has opened up and that Ma Mm -hmm. is a much deeper, more intelligent, more passionate, much wiser woman than even her own daughter, Amy, can see. And that's Mm -hmm. something, of course, that we have all the time. You know, there are so many immigrant families where there becomes this kind of language and cultural gulf between the people who love each other most because the children pick up the new language. The parents don't pick it up as well. The children have a much looser grip on the original language. And you have a mother and a daughter very easily who can barely communicate with each other, no matter how much they love each other. But of course, you know, that's just, that can happen in any family. You know, that type of gulf we have everywhere, but it's exacerbated when there's a language and cultural barrier as well. So in order to write the book, I had to, I am fluent in all three of those languages, but it was hard to keep the book fun and moving and structurally coherent (laughs) while writing and thinking in those languages. And then, for example, like when the story gets more exciting, I deliberately lighten up on the different languages. Mm -hmm. I know that there comes a point when the reader wants the story to be moving and doesn't want to be stopped by, oh, this cool Dutch expression. So, you know, there's some of that still in there, but I'm very conscious of trying to keep the book really readable and fun and easy to read while showing us what it's like to be able to think in different languages. Yeah, it just adds another layer to something that I think is a fundamentally human issue is that sometimes we think we're speaking the same language and we're saying something to one another and you're saying, you know, I'll say something and what what someone else hears is something completely different and that happens all the time. I'm obsessed with that idea that how much are we actually communicating with each other? And sometimes it's for the good, right? When you're falling in love, that projection can be the thing that brings you together. And sometimes when you're falling apart, it's the thing that feels like there's such a a huge, like you said, a gulf, a divide between you that is almost unbridgeable. So again, I just love your themes in this book. I love what you just said, because that's absolutely what I was thinking of in the novel as well, which is indeed that thing that you say one thing and somebody, I mean, who has not had a fight yeah. with their significant <laughs> other where you said one thing and they're like, well, you, the, you're yeah. like, I didn't say that at all. Are you an idiot? You know, yeah. so when that, that just happens so easily and to yes. such an extent. And then, you know, indeed, I think one of the big themes of searching for Sylvie Lee is how well do we truly know the people we love most, you know, and, you know, how many of us have not had that experience of thinking we knew someone inside out and then they go and they do something where you're like, I just cannot believe you just did. I just cannot believe that. Yes. Yes, that's not in line with my idea of who you are. (laughs) Yeah, And are are all three parts of these women in you? Oh, right. That was the second part of your question. Yes, I think that 
I definitely am in all three of these women. Sylvie, I can identify with Sylvie in some ways because, of course, I'm a pretty type A personality as well. And I can be really driven and focused on the goal. But in a lot of ways, I my function in my family was much closer to that of Amy's because I come from a traditional Chinese family. And the hierarchy in a traditional Chinese family is, first of all, gender, you know, male or female, and female is not on top, and age. And I'm the youngest of seven children. So I was like, you know, the bottom of the heap in my family. Like the bottom. <laughs> it's not possible to go any lower than right. I was. And so, you know, I felt like Cassandra my whole life in my family because I would be like, that's a really stupid idea. We should not be doing that. And then they just all go and do it anyway. You know, <laughs> nobody listened to me. <laughs> I loved that example that you gave to Amy where Sylvie couldn't swim because because her prophet said that was not a good thing for her. Like Amy's like, hey, isn't that a self-fulfilling prophecy? Yeah. <laughs> like, don't listen to her. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Yes. So I had that feeling my entire life. And right. indeed, as you know, the Searching for Sylvie Lee is inspired by the real-life disappearance of my brother Quan, who I told you about earlier, the yes. person who gave me the diary that started me as a writer, actually. So he disappeared in real life. And in our family, Quan was really, you know, the golden child. I mean, he, and he, he was a really, really brilliant guy. Well, at work, I mean, with women, he was kind of an idiot, but <laughs> in, in life, he was super, super brilliant. He was such, he was just the sweetest, nicest guy, but he just did not understand the complexities of women and romance. Like you guys right. said, yeah. he just mm -hmm. did not you know, I remember he had just moved to New Mexico or something and I called him and I was like, so how are things? You know, he just got out of a long relationship. So he was single and I said, well, you know, is there anybody interesting there? And he said, he said, you know, the women here are really weird. And I said, okay, well, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, like for example, he said, you know how on my lunch break, I like to go running. He was one of those like really active people who are always like running around, like mm -hmm. jogging and stuff. So he was like, you know how I like to go running on my lunch break? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, you know, all the administrative assistants all wanted to go running too. But he's like, they can't run at all. They're just hanging to the trees, like panting and turning red and mm. gasping for air. I was like, Quan, how fast were you running? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> They're thinking this is kind of an active date. Well, exactly. Oh you know, and he's like, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I always run fast. You know, that's what I do. And I'm like, oh, oh. my God. You know, it's like, of course, they're all like, oh, there's a cute new guy in the office. Right. Let's go try to get to know him. And then he's like running around the mound like an idiot, you know. So I understand that it's a complicated oh. thing very well. Anyway, so yes. he was the golden child in our family. And so in some ways, Sylvie is a combination of me and him. And Amy was very much my role in the family of the one who was not listened to and not considered a great success. And then Ma, I identify with very much just because I'm also a first generation immigrant and I'm a mother myself. So I know what it's like to be seen as different from who you actually are. Yes. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Well, that is something that we talk about when we're talking about complicated 
Usually it's that somebody has a different perception of you or that you have a different face that you show the world and then inside you're something different. And then also there are things that just appear to be contradictions that you feel you've reconciled for yourself. Like that's not a contradiction. That's exactly just who I am. I'm consistently who I am in that way. But there's another way that we've recently been talking, Kate and I have recently been talking on the podcast about becoming complicated. And one of them is through secrets. And again, this is part of what goes on with all three of your characters. They have these secrets and they begin to reveal themselves and unravel. First of all, do you think secrets are something that makes someone complicated or reveals a complication the way I think we do? And how did you know when to reveal them to the reader in your book? Because in real life, it doesn't unfold so neatly. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I mean, I think that, of course, I completely believe in secrets. I think that everyone has them. People have them like to a shocking extent, you know? Like, yeah. You think that yeah. actually we live in our normal lives and it seems like no one has any secrets. But then actually, especially I guess if you're a writer and you read books, you realize, you know, maybe that's why we love characters in books so much because sometimes you know them even better than someone you know in real life. You know, everyone has that's these right. secrets where you think that there are mysteries in every life where you think, well, that went missing. What happened to that? And somebody close to you knows what yes, happened to it, but right. they're not telling you, you know? So I definitely do think that secrets are a part of what make us complicated. And in structuring the novel, it was interesting how to reveal the secrets. And in fact, before Searching for Sylvie Lee, my first two novels, Girl in Translation and Mambo in Chinatown, are both much more straightforward narratives mm-hmm. told in first person by one narrator. And I really liked that because I was worried that having multiple narrators would kind of dissipate the energy. I hate those books where you're like really involved with one character and then yeah. suddenly- And then you turn one. the page and it's someone else. And you're like, wait, what? No. Yes. And you're driving off the cliff somewhere else. You know, you were just about to kiss the hot guy. <laughs> I was very reluctant to write a book with multiple narrators. But then I kind of figured out the structural secret, which was to backdate mm. movie story. So that what yeah. happens is that- In the book, Amy figures out Sylvie's missing. She goes to the Netherlands to find out what happened to her. And then Sylvie's story starts, but Sylvie's story happens a month earlier. So that we see Sylvie taking off just as Amy is going to find clues about what happened to her. And that was really fun because that meant that I could have Amy plant clues and Sylvie plant clues, you know, that I was constantly thinking about what does the reader know at this point? What is the reader wondering and worried about? And so, you know, Amy would meet somebody who we already know, actually knows Sylvie. And then that person is being very strangely mysterious when talking to Amy. And Amy has no idea, of course, but we know because we've been following Sylvie's story that that's actually somebody who knew her. So why is he not revealing that he knew her? You know, so there were a lot of things like that that I could play with that I thought were really fun to do in the novel. Yeah, they're not even in the same time frame and they Mm -hmm. are in dialogue with each other still in this story. Their stories are kind of swerving in and out from each other. No, exactly. That's how thought about it that there that even though we have three different narrators we're constantly revolving around the same question of what happened to sylvie Mm -hmm. at first 
from one person's angle. And then we see maybe what actually happened from Sylvie's angle. So it's the same questions that are being answered and that are being raised, even though we might be going from narrator to narrator. Yeah. But the structure is so well done. I mean, it's really effective. And so did you outline, are you one of those that outlines, I would imagine with this I don't know. I would have to, given the complexity. But what is your writing process like, or at least with this book? I am totally a type A outliner type. <laughs> <laughs> I am so not foofy or feeling my way. I am really, I'm, I'm hardcore. You know, it's like, I have to say, when I first wrote Girl in Translation, I did that like artsy feel your way thing. And that did Let not the characters work. speak to you yeah, and oh tell God. you where they want to go. I know it's like <laughs> sing from your heart. It's like my heart is not singing. There's no singing going on. And that quote from Dr. O about how writing is like driving in a car with the headlights on. You don't know where you're going. That took 10 years for my life. Like that <laughs> destroyed me. You know, really it was so bad advice for me right, because yeah. I am a person who gets lost everywhere. It's like, Mm. I need to know where I'm going. Mm. So I had actually written the first draft of Girl in Translation and I had to throw the whole thing away. I mean, I think I had to, I only kept 40 pages of a 400 page draft because it was really not working. And then I learned I'm the type of writer. I actually need to know what I'm doing. So Searching for Sylvie Lee was outlined before I wrote it. Obviously, a lot of things changed when I was writing it so that, you know, things got moved around, things became deeper, etc. But I did have a clear idea of the ending before I started. I had an idea of what the pacing was going to look like. I had an idea of what kind of twists were going to be in the book. Because, you know, I think if you as the author don't know what the ending is when you write the book, how can you lead the reader astray? You know, you need to bring them to the ending in a way that makes them not suspect what's coming. And yet when the reveals all happen, it feels satisfying because all of the pieces fall into place in a way they hadn't expected. So indeed, I really thought about all of that before I actually started writing the book. Yeah, that makes sense because you're right. And I am that type A too. And and I've done the same thing. I've written just thousands of words and I'm like, this is, I don't understand. This is, I need a, I need to know where I'm going. I need beats here. Otherwise I'm writing about, you know, something else that happened. And, and I'm hoping at the end, the way we do in life, and that'll bring me to my next question. I'm hoping in the end it makes sense, but in writing, in a, in a novel, that's not how it works. So there's like triple type A on this call. This is, this is, there's, you can't get any more type A, it seems, totally. than the three of us. But now we're going to get in touch with our other side. I want to come back to this wind. So one of the themes that we talk about a lot on this podcast is fate versus free will. I share, similar to you, not the same beats, but the same idea of a varied background. I studied political science. I wanted to be the first woman president. I ended up as a lawyer who worked in finance. So law and finance aren't immediately the same. I was a yoga instructor while I was pregnant. I moved across the country and back twice. I write. We started this podcast. And whenever my friends look at me like, what are you doing now? I always think of the Tolkien line, not all who wander are lost. And you conclude your current bio with a beautiful line. Now I live in the Netherlands with my husband and my two sons. And sometimes while walking alongside a canal, I am quite surprised by the path my life has taken. Surprised and very grateful. So 
obviously you can relate to that. But in hindsight, every step of your path really makes sense. But what about when you're in it? Do you trust that there's some other plan for you, this wind, universe, fate, whatever is working? Or do you, like me, have to constantly remind yourself to release my white-knuckled grip on life? Where do you fall in the moment? Well, I love hearing about your life. I think that is just so fantastic, everything you have done. I think that I have made decisions in my life that I have been very afraid of for like a long time. Like, Mm. you know, that decision to be a writer, I have doubted myself for so many years, you know, and I think part of it is also that I don't come from a background where that was supported in any way. I, you know, I've spoken to other writers who are like, oh, my family, you know, I was born to be a writer. My mother was a writer. And it's the only thing I wanted to do. And I was like loved and adored from the moment I started writing. I'm like, I hate you. (laughs) So foreign to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's so different because I don't come from that kind of faith that I'm doing something worthwhile or that I'm good mm-hmm. at it or yes. that I will be able to continue making a living in it or, you know, any of those things. A lot of the decisions I've made, I've second guessed like constantly through my life. But I do believe in fate or maybe I believe in instinct. You know, I do believe mm. that I have a gut instinct that has never really steered me wrong and that that has taken me to where I need to go, no matter how strange that path may sound. And, you know, I mean, I, you guys have the big bio of my life, but I have done a lot of other things that are not in my official bio. Mm -hmm. You know, I was Mm -hmm. like, I worked for Lehman brothers Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a computer Mm -hmm. specialist. I worked in three laboratories also at Sloan Kettering Memorial hospital and a, bioengineering lab, you know, I've done all of these other things in my life. And I think maybe the one thing that did change my life in a way was that at a certain age, at a certain point when I was in college, I decided that I would never let fear stop me from doing something. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, good sense. Yes. I mean, yeah. I would not go jumping off the cliff right. because Correct. Sense, never. Right. that is a stupid thing to do. But, right. you know, there are a lot of times in life when you don't do something and it's because you're afraid. The only reason is because you're afraid. You know that it might be a fun thing to do, an interesting thing to do, but you're afraid and you don't want to do it. And so after I left Harvard and wanted to be a writer, you know, being a super type A personality, I knew that any job I got, I would like throw myself into it and wind up not being a writer. So I wanted a job that would, you know, give me the space, the mental room to still write. And so the first job I applied for was this job watering plants in a big office building, you know, because they hire people to water plants in those big offices. And Mm -hmm. so I went to the interview and I was like, you know, I really want to water plants. I am very devoted (laughs) to watering plants. You know, this is my calling is to water plants. And the guy guy looked at me and he said, you know, this job is not just about watering plants. I'm like, no. He's like, no. He's like, you also have to pick off the dead leaves. And I said, I'm on it. I am, you know, I'm this dead leaf picker. Like I am going to. Oh my God! He's, he's looking at your resume with Harvard on it, and he's yeah, like, well, I "Okay, I, I think she can pick leaves." Probably, <laughs> I did not think 
that because I did not get hired. Oh, no. And then, so he was like, I don't want you. So then I saw an ad in the paper that said, wanted professional ballroom dancer will train. And it was, you know, one of those things where I thought, I want to go. I'm terrified of going because I will be clumsy and not attractive enough and wearing the wrong clothes, all of which turned out to be true. But I was like, I do want to go. Like, it seemed like a really kind of challenging, fun job. And that was how I wound up doing what I did. But indeed, life can take a very strange path when you have unconventional dreams. Oh, I love that so much. Oh my gosh. I'm just like glowing inside or something. And just hearing you talk about that stuff. I remember when I was working in a bank in 2008 in the recession and I worked in commercial mortgage industry. So I got laid off as the whole company did. And I was like, I'm going to go get pregnant and be a yoga teacher. And people are like, what are you? You're insane. You got to get back on your path. You got to get, you know, keep going. And I'm like, no, this is an opportunity. And in a couple of years, when I go back, no one will say, why didn't you work from 2008 to 2011? Because my industry was dead. I was making babies. Right. It's fine. And I got back and becoming in. becoming a yoga teacher. <laughs> yeah. And I got back in no problem after that because I did see far ahead into that, that I could spin this story in a way that would work for me and also allow me to do whatever I want. But Oh, I don't know. I just love everything you're saying. It's just really, really, really speaking to me, obviously. So this won't seem so strange, perhaps my segue, since we're, we're talking, talking about, about concepts and, yeah. yes, of fate versus free will. So we have a very strong side interest on this podcast in astrology. We're both lawyers and writers, and we have come across very distinct reactions to these concepts of fate versus free will. Many lawyers, as you can imagine, sort of reject the idea that our futures could be written in the stars and they believe they're in complete control of their lives. But so many of the writers and authors we talk to totally embrace these concepts of destiny and mysticism and intuition. So one of the ways that we connect with what we call our woo-woo side is through astrology. So we ask all our authors, what's your sign and do you relate to it? Yes. Well, I mean, I am a Capricorn and oh, I am totally okay. a Capricorn. <laughs> you know? yes. I do. I totally yeah. do relate to it. I think that mm-hmm. I believe in both. You know, I'm a scientist at yeah. heart in many ways, but mm-hmm. I absolutely believe that there is so much that we don't understand and that we can't comprehend. And I think a part of being a good scientist is understanding the limitations of human knowledge. Oh, yeah. I think that if you, you know, we think about concepts like God and death and infinity, how can a human being understand? How can concepts that are so immense, I mean, assuming there is God or goddesses, or, you know, I'm Buddhist, so I'm not from a monotheistic religion, but, you know, that there are supernatural forces that can somehow keep in touch with every being that lives on this earth. How can we possibly fit that into a logical system that we have devised? And I think that that's, you know, a part of my faith is based on science. You know, I think that every equation balances and Mm -hmm. nothing is ever lost. It's only transformed. You know, you can always balance the equation if you have enough knowledge. And then I think So how can death be the end? You know, if death is the end, the equation doesn't balance. Right. It doesn't Mm. make sense that you have something that is alive. And then at a certain point, that 
essence that makes that thing alive disappears because nothing disappears. Nothing in the universe disappears. There's a fundamental law of physics that everything is only transformed, but maybe into forms that we cannot yet measure. So yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, that's the first bit of math and science I've ever understood. No, that made (laughs) so much sense to me. It was beautiful. I'm not a math or science person, but that just completely spoke to me. I understood that. That was amazing. Yes. I Um, love the way to look at it like that. Yeah. By the way, I'm a Capricorn moon. That's what (gasps) what drives my inside, my internal personality. So I knew it. I knew we could relate. But yeah, I mean, the idea that there's something else out there is both impossible to comprehend and so obvious it can't be denied, right? And Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of how you make it work for you and And I do think it is hard when you are, you know, living your life to know what choices to make. And I think that it's like in Searching for Sylvie Lee, you can see in some ways the book is about not just a fulfillment of the American dream, but the price of the American dream. Mm. And Sylvie, for example, is so glowing and so successful in so many ways. But in doing that, she has denied a whole other part of herself. You know, she's just Mm -hmm. had the blinders on and has gone straight for the goal and basically not really opened up to anyone else, not really been vulnerable, you know, has been too scared to do that because of her driven self. And I do think that it's important to have both sides, you know, of course, to have your ambitions Mm -hmm. and your drive, but also to have that softer spiritual side that has you go become a yoga teacher and have kids, you know, in the middle of a big career. And I do believe, I think there have been a lot of times when people have thought I was crazy for making the choices I did. Because for example, you know, when I was at Columbia and the MFA program, I was this kind of hot up and coming New York writer. And I published my first stories and they got a lot of attention right away. So I had this rising career but I met a guy, you know, I met a Dutch guy and I left, you know, I left New York. I moved to the Netherlands with him. I'm still married to him today. But there were a lot of people who thought I was doing something really stupid mm-hmm. when I did that. And I think in some ways it was not the most logical move because I left New York City. I left all my connections. I left the writing world. I was derailed by needing to assimilate to a new culture, Mm -hmm. learn a new language. And it did hurt me in some ways because when I finished the first draft of Grown Translation, I had signed with a big deal agent when I was a young hot thing at Columbia who had encouraged me through all the years that I wrote the novel. I finished it about 10 years later when I was no longer such a young, hot, rising star. I had Mm -hmm. not published anything else in those years. I had not entered any contest. The only thing I'd done was work on the novel. And he um, read the manuscript and he sent me an email, which is always a bad sign. He sent me an email that said, Dear Jean, there is no market for this book. Mm -hmm. And then it got worse. I mean, you would think that's already your biggest nightmare, but no, actually it's like the monster within the monster comes out. And he said, if you need any help finding a new agent, I'd be happy Mm -hmm. to give you So it's like, oh, (laughs) it's like the book was so bad that he had to dump me for it. Mm -hmm. So I got dumped. And, you know, that was probably the moment when I came closest to quitting 
as a writer because I was in the Netherlands. I mean, I didn't even know people who really spoke English. You know, I was so I'd written this book in the attic of my house. Nobody was waiting for me to be a writer. Right. And I had two little kids at that point, two babies that I was responsible for, that I needed to help take care of, you know, my family along with my husband. So I waited about a month. I reread the manuscript and I thought, you know, I love this book. Like, I don't know how to write a better book at this point. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'm going to give myself a year to try to find a new agent and then I'll reevaluate. If it doesn't work at the end of that time, then I'll see if I need to make a career change or whatever. So my thought was to go from the top and just be rejected by everybody. I thought, <laughs> bring it on, you know, just yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so I made <laughs> I made a list of the biggest, most powerful agents I could find. And I thought, they'll all reject me. And then I'll go to the next 10 and they'll reject me. And then I'll just, I thought, I'll go keep going to get down to $4.99 and somebody takes me. So I remember it was a Thursday night here in the Netherlands. And it was almost like it was around 11, 11, 12 ish. It was pretty late. So New York City, you know, heart of the publishing world, it was probably about 5 or 6 p.m. And I had all my e queries ready. And I looked at the first name on my list, the first query letters, this big, big deal agent who like represents all these huge, huge people. And I thought, oh my God, I'm doing this all wrong because I was going against the standard advice. And you know, the standard advice is when you're a little author, go for a little agent, go for a little agent who's going to have time for you yeah. and who might, you know, like give you the time of day. And I was doing it backwards. And I thought, oh, this is all wrong. I need to find a junior agent because this is ridiculous. An agent like this is never, ever going to take this unknown who wrote her book in the attic in the Netherlands, you know? So I basically, I had this like panic attack, but my hand was on the mouse when I had this panic attack. So I clicked and oh. it was the whole thing got sent. So yeah. it got emailed and then 20 minutes later, oh. that first name on the list asked for the manuscript. Yes, 20. it was the same manuscript. Right. I had not changed a word no. and not because I thought the book was perfect, but because like if I started pulling at it, the whole thing would unravel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I just, mm -hmm. I just yes. did not know how to fix that thing. It was like as good as uh -huh. I could make it and I couldn't pull at it. Not a word had been changed. So she asked for the manuscript. The next day I got more offers. I got the first call for representation on Monday of the next week. Tuesday, that agent called, the first one that I had looked at, and uh, she is my agent today. Oh my gosh. What a great yeah. story. That is a great story. Oh, having hit that button, that having your finger over the mouse, having done that, I know the panic. Yes. Corinne thinks I have the lucky finger, so she, yes. she on a novel we wrote together, she makes me send them out. There's something about, she thinks, because we've had, at least had success in terms of people asking for the manuscript. Yeah. Yes. That's and that's yeah, true. but this finger, I know that hit your finger over the mouse. It's I'm always like this. Oh, <laughs> oh that's gosh. but that's a great, great success story or yes. fate or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. In some ways, yes, logically, I should have stayed in New York City yeah. and built my career as a writer there. You know, I did what my instincts told me to do. And, you know, there were times when I doubted myself. There right. were times where I thought, oh, my God, I have just had the stupidest life ever. <laughs> like, 
they have just done the dumbest things anybody possibly could do. And it doesn't help that I think I come from a family that have told me you have done the stupidest things yes. anybody could do. Yes. You know? mm -hmm. It's like you mm -hmm. have the wealthy, handsome boyfriend and you don't marry him. And then they're like, what are you doing? Like, what is wrong with you? And then when you're like single and sobbing and eating cookies, you know, you're mm -hmm. like, I am so stupid. Why didn't mm -hmm. I marry him? Yeah. But in the end, actually, you were right. You know, yes. I, think, I think you can trust that in the end, you are right. Mm. Yes, yes. I do trust that. It is hard getting through those moments, though, because when you're not on the other side yet and you're like, I made all these choices and I believe in them, but, oh, you get tested. You get tested there. That's so true. That's yeah. a part of life that you get tested. Jean, mm -hmm. you're just speaking my language. Yeah. You are filling me <laughs> up today, I have to tell you. So we want to end with one question I think we'll kind of combine too. So we always ask what complicated women inspire you. It sounds like you have a whole entire family and a whole list of them, but also what are you into right now? So maybe if you could think of like something you're reading or watching that you are just loving right now? I think in terms of the women who inspire me, you know, I have such differing women who have inspired me. I think if I have to look really, really deep in my life, I think, you know, my mother is my mm -hmm. primary and greatest inspiration because my mother was a woman who is so intelligent yet never had any opportunities. You know, she grew up in China and she was not allowed to go to school. Her brothers were allowed to go to school because she was from a wealthy family. And I remember she told me as a, that as a little girl, she would like dust their books and try to kind of peek under the covers while she was cleaning the room because she wanted so much to know what was in the books, but she never had that opportunity. People talk about parents who didn't go to college. I mean, my parents, neither of them even went to high school. So, you know, mm -hmm. I really come from a family where I am an anomaly. But if I look at my brothers and sisters who are all really pretty successful, then I think, you know, who was my mother? You know, where did my mother come from? And who could my mother have been if she had mm -hmm. only had a fraction of the opportunities that I've had? But then I think, you know, other women who have really inspired me have been like my professors, for example, mm -hmm. at yeah. Harvard. And I remember, you know, going to college and feeling like the world opened up to me, you know, two professors that really meant a lot to me were Professor Helen Vendler and Professor Marjorie Garber. And Helen Vendler is a great poet and reader. And Marjorie Garber is a Shakespearean. And I remember I was in this session with Professor Garber and she was, we we're talking, we had just read this paper that she had written. And of course I was, you know, at that time I was what, like 18, 19 years old. And she was kind of disparaging the paper, you know, just being humble about it. It was a very brilliant Freudian analysis of King Lear or something. And it was so impressive to me in like my tiny little unformed mind. <laughs> and she was, she just sat there and she said, you know, she said, I was a little bit afraid to reread this paper because you know, I wrote it 20 years ago. And I was just like, oh. <gasps> she wrote this before I was alive. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is such a brilliant woman who was clearly also extremely brilliant when 20 years ago. And mm -hmm. she has been developing every moment since that time when I was not yet born yeah. to now. So where is she now intellectually compared to where I am? So that was a real inspiration to me to like see 
women who were so brilliant. And Helen Vendler is somebody who she's got this like breathy little voice. <laughs> she doesn't look very impressive. You know, she is terrifying and very <laughs> formidable intellectually. But if you saw her on the street, she looks like a nice little lady. Right. But then uh -huh. I remember you would sit in her office and you would just bring up some critical reference to one line of a Wordsworth poem. And she'll be like, oh, yes, that was in this book on page 126, oh, third part. And then she would pull it out and it would be right there. And, right. and, you know, to me, it was just such an inspiration to find intelligence and talent and not only talent, but talent that had been developed right. and taken to such a level in women like that. So that's been very inspiring to me. I think in terms of what I'm so into today, it's hard to tell, say, because right now, of course, we are in the pandemic and mm -hmm. we are in such a crazy, crazy time in our lives. I think that I read a lot. I read usually books that people have asked me to blurb. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of exciting things happening today in terms of the books that are coming out. I think that writers of color, women writers have a greater voice than we've ever had before. I think that the industry realizes that these are people who need to have attention paid to them. And I think that celebrity book clubs, you know, like Reese Witherspoon, like Jenna Bush Hager, like Bellatrist, are really doing a fantastic job, you know, along with the ones we knew, like Oprah, mm -hmm. in giving attention to books that might not have reached a mainstream audience otherwise. So that's something else that I'm really into right now. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Other than what's on the New York Times bestseller list, James Patterson for the 400th time and <laughs> Stephen yeah, King. Yeah. And yeah, I do love that these women are banding together. And I don't know if you saw the woman who just started a new imprint, Molly Stein. Yeah. Oh, no. Based off of this idea too, that it's more of a grassroots, what people really love and are interested in instead of the New York Times telling you, you know, from top down, this is what you should be paying attention to, having people go, I really love this book and and I want to talk about it. And I'm I'm telling all my friends. So it is a big shift going on right now in everything in the social consciousness, but also specifically as we're talking in publishing. And that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think, you know, podcasts like yours where people are able just to have this conversation. Yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I think that crossing geographic boundaries has become easier than ever. I mean, we've just sure. become much more used to it now. It's one of the good things that have come out of the pandemic that it doesn't matter so much physically where you are, but I think that really a lot of unknown voices are now being heard that wouldn't normally be heard. Right. That's yeah, such a good such point. A good point. Yes. Oh, look well, at that. Searching for Sylvie Lee is out in paperback now. That's what we're celebrating. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. And everyone should get a copy. It's a great book. And Jean, I am such a fan of your, I am a fan for life now. I've loved, oh, yeah. I was a fan of your writing and now I'm just a fan of you and your outlook and your perspective. And thank you for this. This is going to stay with us for a while. Yes. This is going to be one of those we're talking about for a while. So thank you so much. Oh, and please tell our listeners where they can find you, like on social media or your webpage. I feel the same way, ladies, because this has just been such an incredible kind of deep, free-ranging, mm. complicated and deep talk. So complicated in the best sense of the word right. that about yes. going beneath the surface, but not being difficult. 
So I have loved meeting both of you. And indeed, yes, if anyone would like to connect with me, I am on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram. I'm also on my website, which is just genequark.com. So I love to hear from readers or just from people who might have a question or a comment about something. So yeah, I'd love to hear from all of you. Yay. Thank you guys so much oh, for having me. You. I have loved Thank you. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash popfictionwomen. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.